if there's somebody on the job who might share your values, with whom you can converse and share more than just, I need such and such a shot. That's the importance of, in your work, representation. Hi, I'm Natasha Tony, and you're listening to Narrative Shift. My guest today is an institution in the film editing industry. She was the first African-American woman to join the American Cinema Editors Association back in the 90s, where she currently sits on the board of directors. In the 30-plus years she spent working as an editor, she has over 80 credits to her name. I'm talking, of course, about Lillian E. Benson. Born and raised in New York, Lillian is most proud of the work she's done in the world of documentary. In her work on nonfiction stories, she aims to uncover the history of Black resilience and excellence in the United States, and she does it extremely well. Her work has garnered her Emmy nominations and Peabody Awards, among others. What I enjoy about Lillian is her candor and passion. Watching Lillian's projects gave me inspiration in my own activism and advocacy, even before I had the pleasure of meeting her. What I really enjoyed about our conversation is how storytelling takes on many forms and genres. How we see the world and how the world sees us is always an interesting exploration. Here's my conversation with Lillian. Hi, Lillian. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I like to start out these conversations by honoring our ancestors and where we've come from. Can you share a bit about your early years? I'm born and raised in New York. I am a New Yorker. I went to uh, New York City Public School System. I went to college in New York. I moved out to California in 93. So I was grown. And I moved out to California, not so much to look for work, but it was for personal reasons. And I thought I was going to get married. And I ended up not. I broke up with this man when my furniture was on the moving truck coming across country. So I couldn't call the movers in New York and say, don't send it. And I'd already had an apartment. I could have lost money on that and just said, oh, take the two months, I'm going back. But I stayed, and I don't think it was a mistake. But what people told me when I moved to Los Angeles, the advice I got from men who moved out here, most of whom were in the film business, was that people were fake. But then you say, okay, how do I keep going toward what I want to do, which is help the world? My parents, if they told you something, you could trust it. If they said yes, I said this about my mother, if she said yes, it was yes. If it was no, it was no. And if it was maybe, it really was maybe. You might get it and you might not. And one of my psychologist friends said, you were very, very lucky. And she also said that they were visionaries, which was something I just couldn't see. She said, well, they poured into you and your sister. So they believed that what they did for you was going to bear fruit. These working class people who did not go to high school, who had regular jobs, you know, who went to church on Sunday, gave to charity, washed the windows, did the laundry, all that kind of stuff, made you speak right to your grandmama, were visionaries. It's interesting when you share 
about the visionary piece of it because I feel like I see that in the stories that you tell. I didn't, you know, I didn't really connect that that was what was going on. I had very good teachers. So I'm in the second grade. I'm taking a test. And this woman, who was, I guess, the proctor, she wasn't my teacher. She saw how well I was doing. And then she gave me something harder. And I had to suck in my little seven-year-old self. Because I realized what she was doing. And of course I did it. I walked home. I never told anybody until I was 40. So I carried that 33 years before I said it to another person. But I knew it. What does that do to you? Yeah, I think that when I hear that and just kind of understand where some of our own internalized pieces of the puzzle come in, it is as a seven-year-old that we're making sense of based on how we're treated and education system and the inequities and what we experience and the discrimination, that very much how we're treated, the energy that we feel, the shame that we hold, and I think about little Lillian walking back home and knowing somehow to keep that a secret. Yeah. And recognizing that there were people in the world who were bigger than I was mm -hmm. that didn't want me to succeed. Mm -hmm. So the good news is I had other teachers. The next grade, I had a teacher who got me out of that school. The next three grades, I had teachers who, I could tell you their names. I still know their names. I don't know that woman's name, mm -hmm. but I know the one who helped me and the one who helped me after that. And my high school art teacher is going to turn 90 in July, and I'm going to see her because we're still in touch. She was instrumental in my going to the school I attended getting the, all the scholarships I needed to go to a private school from a working-class family. And so that woman at PS 287 didn't stop me, mm -hmm. but she wounded me. Mm -hmm. So we can't ever forget to try to be observant because you don't know. I don't know what these assistants that I have or these young editors that I see or even my own contemporaries, what they went through. Because mm -hmm. we don't talk about stuff. We've learned it's not safe with just everybody. That's right. And one of the things my father used to tell me, which has nothing to do with identity, but with survival, he recognized his daughter. He said, well, Lillian, you know, sometimes you should be a little diplomatic. This is not about identity, but it's about memory and what you bring to the yeah. your art your craft, whatever you want to call it, yeah. your job. At Universal Studios, which is where I currently work, there's a street coming from the parking lot mm -hmm. going up toward the building where I work. And there's a point at which the sidewalk goes so you can only walk two abreast. You, for most of it, it's three. Mm -hmm. I started to notice that people would walk two and two and expect me to get in the street. Oh, no. My mama had to do that. Yeah. 
My daddy had to do that. All of my aunties had to do that, and uncles, cousins who lived in the South. I do not do that. I always wear my badge on my outside of my coat. Mm-hmm. Y'all can't say nothing. That's right. I belong here. And I used to, like, stop, say something. And I did have this happen once in New York in my entire life there on the subway platform. This guy was walking with his girlfriend. He didn't move. I stopped. If it happens in the street, I stopped. And I came up and told my African-American assistant when it happened, he was shocked. He was shocked that you had to do that? He was shocked that it had happened on the lot. Because he thought as a woman, it wouldn't Mm -hmm. happen to me. He has been stopped. He'd been stopped by guards. Because obviously a black man doesn't want to belong on the lot of Universal, even though my executive producer is African-American. They just got it in their heads. You don't belong there. Mm-hmm. But he said, you should just keep walking. He said, don't break your stride. He said, that's what you should do. And I tried, and I was a little bit too afraid of getting knocked to the ground. But I never got in that road. Yeah, I love that. And you know the answer. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, no, no. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Not today. Yeah. Not today. Yeah. Not after all that I've been through. Not after what my parents went through. Not that, you know, not after all of that. I don't know if people really understand that as we talk about the sidewalk piece of it, like that energy, the body language, that we are navigating that every day. Every day we navigate it. Yeah. They told a white editor. I don't know how it, we, I mentioned it to him, but I had mentioned it on a Tuesday and it happened Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I came up those back steps, and I said, guess what happened, Etienne? He said, what? I said, the sidewalk thing. Again. He said, what? I said, the sidewalk thing. Just now. And I went to my room. But in talk, because I let it go with him, I didn't walk in my room mad. That's right. That's right. The particular assistant that I was spoke to about it with, he's an editor now. And one day he said, I can't tell you how grateful I am to be able to talk to you. I said, well, it's two-way straight, you know. It's a two-way straight. I'm grateful I can talk to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the importance of, in your work, representation. If there's somebody on the job who might share your values, because there's no guarantee that just because you're from the same ethnic tribe, they're going to be like you, because I've had that happen and be disappointed, shocked furious or just sad but sometimes you have people who are with whom you can converse and share more than just i need such and such a shot or i need such and such a sound effect you know it's more than that what we do is more than that that's right and i think that what i have learned over the last several years of having these conversations with filmmakers is that there is a certain sense of isolation that we all have had, that it is very much a competitive environment. But it doesn't take much once we start to share, once we are using empathy and compassion, even you know having the conversations stateside when elections were going on over the last few years and people really coming in with polarized positions and then feeling so relieved that in having conversation, we were bringing in this holistic and human 
point of view to be able to talk about how do we be in relationship with one another. You know, I'm hearing you even in talking about identity, talking about community and how important community is for our survival within an industry that you were told from the get-go was fake, that we're having to negotiate our value all the time with each project. Who is your community? I think the community is being similar in spirit. It's never just the work or just a movie. At least as a black person, I feel like every single thing, you know, it ought to be doing something. Should be making people feel better, like a film about dance. It should educate people, like a civil rights film or gay rights film or Japanese internment camp film. That's one of the most important films I worked on mm-hmm. for me because I knew so little. And, you know, and I told the director, I said, listen, I know prejudice. I don't know that prejudice, but I know prejudice. So I think I could help because he had to choose somebody who was not from his community because he needed somebody to just get that stuff done. The only thing I can say about, you know, that I try to share with people, especially students, that if it feels bad, it is bad. Trust your instincts because you can get in trouble if you don't. Because first of all, you start to lose your sensitive edge. If you keep making excuses, then you won't see it clearly anymore. And you can't jump at every little thing. Not everything that somebody says is really meant as an insult, but you gotta listen to what they say also to other people because there are many people out there that will never come for you, but will come for your assistant or somebody who's in rank below them Mm -hmm. or who pick on the PA. They don't pick on you. Yeah, that's right. And that that empowerment piece, I think, of people knowing that it's not failure if you remove yourself from a situation where you're being treated unfairly. I think that when we talk about workplace harassment or discrimination, that we have pressed the override button so many times because we didn't want to cause waves, because we've internalized it, because, again, we love the work that we do. You know, we want to go and do the work. We're committed to it. I think that as storytellers and no matter what department we're in within the film industry, that when I ask, you know, what keeps you here? Why did you join and how did you join? And then what keeps you here? It comes back to the passion of being a part of the collaboration, even though the way that we collaborate always needs to be adjusted and looked at in our inclusive practices, which... I'm hopeful that we're in a process right now in really looking at, but I think that it is important what you say is that when we get into a leadership position to know that part of our role is to empower our assistants and the people in that hierarchical system. And it doesn't mean that we don't still experience it, Yeah, but we also need to recognize, and I think this goes into you know, a bit of the culture shift and that there may be more. And I know that for a time that you were the only or one of the only or the firsts, that in this time period, I'm starting to see more Black and Indigenous and racialized 
people within the industry in all different departments. And I'm curious about how do we as leaders ensure that they know that they belong? I didn't know any better. First person I worked with who helped me get into the industry, who's a white woman, she's passed away now. And she said, there's a Madeline Anderson. And I said, well, who's she? And she said, well, she's an editor at WNET. And that means, you know, if she can do it, you can do it. It was just that straightforward. Mm -hmm. And so there have always been people. They just don't necessarily stay. Madeline left. She's still alive. She left editing and became a producer because she couldn't move on. One of her pieces is part of the Regeneration African-American Filmmakers exhibit at the Academy Museum. But that's what she said. There's another one who does it, so there's no reason you can't. Yeah, and there it was. And there it was, exactly. And now there are many. And now there are many. And they know about you because you just happened to win a big award. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about being honored in that way and what comes up for you? How does that make you feel? Well, first of all, I never thought it would happen. I have never been nominated for an award by that organization at the Eddies, American Cinema Editors. What I say to people is sometimes you do the work and somebody notices. You can't do the work for the notice because you'd be dying on the vine. But I gave a very good speech. I agree. People said, oh, you know, you made people cry. I was like, yeah, that's the job. You know, I know the job. Mm -hmm. But what I told them, which was truthful, that was the most important thing, was that I knew I had one chance. I had to nail it. Mm It was my responsibility as a black woman and their first woman of color to nail it. Thank you very much. No choice. Mm -hmm. So you have your stuff that you do to help yourself. And I usually think about it a lot, especially speaking. And sometimes you get the first line, or sometimes you get the last line. But as you get the first and the last, you got it. Mm -hmm. The first line was that I was a child of the union. And we were at a union hotel. And this had never occurred to me that it would have this kind of effect. And I said, I'm not. My father was not in the director's guild or the the writer's guild or even the editor's guild. He was a member of Local 144 of the Hotel Trade Workers Union. And those Latino waiters in the back at the banquet table snapped around. And I thought, oh, I never thought that the bread would go that far in the water. Because basically, I was their daughter. So I was a beneficiary of the work of the union. And so then, you know, then you go, then you take it from there. You have a chance to say something. And then I listened to the American Cinema Editors Award Ceremony, which is bigger, you know, this bigger. When I was up there, I always watched the speeches because. You know, and, you, and your memory doesn't always serve you well. So I went online to look at the ones that I liked, mm-hmm. that I remembered liking. And everyone had a joke. And I didn't have no jokes. 
So I had to write a joke. Oh. No, I had to write two jokes. So I gave myself notes. Oh, that's great. I wrote two jokes. So now you're a comedian as well, is what you're telling me. No. Okay. Well, yes, I am. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to add that. My assistant said, this message you're so funny. Yeah. And I said, I'm not funny. They said, no, you're funny because you don't really realize you're making a joke. And then you say something that's just so, and they laugh. And it's like, I don't mean to be funny. But what I learned also was that sometimes it's wise to be funny. That you should make the, like you should smile sometimes. And you should compliment someone on their dress or their tie. You are funny, by the way, in your (laughs) delivery, for sure. Maybe I'm getting better at that. But, you know, being funny can protect you, according to Chris Rock and others. But sometimes funny can draw, you know, draw fire. So I'm always about not drawing fire. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about your storytelling and the impact. I think that the work that you've done allows for many of us who don't know our history and know our history well to be able to really dial in and connect to often in my existence, erasure, denial, assimilation, that we have to go along to get along, even talking about civil rights. And again, I grew up as a Canadian black kid in my biological white British family. And so I even understood white privilege inside my house and what that afforded. But as soon as Sammy, my sister, and I, as the black kids, walked out, our experience was very different. And... We didn't know what our history was until we started to have access to books and films. And really that has shaped, I think, my own activism to be able to understand that those injustices and what I was feeling uh, are legitimate. And through storytelling, that has allowed me to find my voice. Do you find that... Being able to tell stories and to teach comes through in how you edit and tell the stories that you do. Yeah. I did teach in the New York public school system for two and a half years and realized that it was not for me. Filmmaking, it was the thing that made me happiest. So when I left teaching and and got into the film business with this woman, through the efforts of this woman, Pat Powell, who told me about Madeline Anderson... I learned everything on the job. So I didn't have film theory and things like that. I'd had art history. So that was my equivalent to film theory. Part of what helps is because I'm from the working class, I can look from the bottom up. Mm. And I'm up further now, and I can look down and see different things and recognize that Everybody's looking at the same thing, but they don't see the same thing. There's the objective truth. That's the outside. That's kind of like the facts. Mm -hmm. Like there's a law passed or that there are no rights a black man has or a white man has to respect. There's that reality. And then there's a reality of walking at Universal and having people think I should get in the street. Now, are they consciously doing that? Do they consciously see me as a black person? Or are they just 
thinking about themselves. I don't know. And which one is the truth? And my truth is not your truth. I feel like you're listening as a listener and an observer. That's also something that's coming across to me is that you need to be able to study whatever it is that you are about to edit, that you are somebody who is open to learning and immersing yourself into it. I think you get a good product that way. Mm -hmm. And I do think that sometimes it's hard. I don't know if I could do a bunch of civil rights shows again. I don't know if I could go in that space again. Mm -hmm. There's just much more responsibility Mm -hmm. with those kinds of shows. And you have to lead people. Somebody, the archivist at Black Side on the Eyes on the Prize said this. What I like is that you walk us to the edge of something. Mm -hmm. And then you just bring us on over. And what she was talking about was some of the violence in um, the Boston Bussing episode, Keys to the Kingdom. It does hold up. It still holds up. It's unfortunately still true, the issues that were being dealt with. Mm -hmm. But I learned in a classical music class that I was taking, you know, introduction to classical music. And this is what she was describing. In opera, there's the recitative setting the story. And there's probably a phrase for it when you write scripts, too. And then there's the arias, which are the emotion. I was so excited. Next day, I went into this same director on the Massachusetts 54. I said, oh, Jackie, I know what we got to do. So much of the episode was about legalism. So we always had to explain what the laws were that people were pushing against. And so she said, Louise J. Hicks, who was the villain, she's on the steps pleading for the crowd to disperse. She can no longer control them. They've surrounded South Boston High School, and they don't know if the black kids are going to get out. But we did it with stock footage and interviews. And she said, so that's the aria. So then we went through the script and she said, okay, maybe we need an aria here. And it was fun. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. But she was really, really, extremely gifted and could see things differently. Now, she was a history major. She enjoyed art, art and music, but it wasn't like she had studied. Mm-hmm. But she studied. She knew everything about history. Mm-hmm. And she also was a, went down and taught in the Mississippi Freedom School. So she put herself in the line of fire. And so we just do what we can do. Yeah. I couldn't do that. Would you call yourself an artist? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. People have said that. Mm-hmm. And I stopped resisting it. And they're right. You know, I heard somebody on a, an Academy Museum paddle. He said, I'm an artisan. And I don't like that word particularly. And he said, artists make something out of nothing. And artisans know what they're making and make this kind of high-end piece. Well, I don't draw the line now. But I do think in fine art, I know what they're saying. It's like, like a composer. Well, how, is, it, is a composer the artist and then the players are not artists? I think we're all artists, really. Yeah. This director also said that she thought that the best editors were like soloists. Mm-hmm. She said that director is more like the composer and the editor is really like the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what you write, somebody can't play it. But we play what they write, and then we add a little, you know, pizzazz. You had mentioned a story 
that needs to be told in your own project. And I'm wondering, are you going to make the film? I can't answer that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And is it maybe a kid's book Mm. and not a film? Because I could kind of do that. But I'd have to know the purpose for this. Right. Is it enough just to let somebody know that it's happened to somebody else? Mm -hmm. But I guess it, because it is a combination for me mm-hmm. of the seriousness of the experience, but also probably the 10,000 times, you know, as the hymn says, 10,000 times 10,000 times it has happened mm-hmm. to people, not just black people, but people. And what are the consequences? You know, is it about the hiddenness of it? Is it about the silence? You know, it could be about the silence. And that's kind of what I'm thinking. It is about the silence. Because I knew somehow in my little self. And how she finds her voice. Yeah. The themes around and what you've shared. I see her on that sidewalk. I know that she found her voice, right? Well, maybe it's also about the things that happen to people that it's not just overcoming. It is about overcoming, but it's not letting you... I don't think the things that happen to you are gone. No, and the strength that we have to carry on, to know that we're not alone. That, again, when we talk about that sense of belonging, and I feel like this time that we've had to be in community together, to share a little bit with the audience what I got to experience even in our short time in different sessions together, the lightness that you have, the creativity, the artistry, the beauty that you hold, I want you to know that it emanates uh, even when we are. I can't wait for that book to come out. Well, I'll have to keep you posted. But, you know, what you're saying about people do see you if they're looking. And that's why, you know, I think it's a requirement. It's only three generations back, four generations back, that my family was enslaved. And also those four generations back, on the white side, which causes me to have freckles and green eyes, are the slave masters and the overseers. They live in parallel streams. I feel it is my responsibility as a black creative to show up. There's still work to be done. And if you shine a light, maybe somebody will follow you. That's right. That's right. And that's what it feels like, I think, in connecting with you, you know, the inspiration that you've been doing the good work. And we can inspire others to come along and do the good work. I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing your wisdoms. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. That was a conversation with film and TV editor Lillian E. Benson. If you want to learn more about Lillian's work or where you can find her, check out our show notes for links. On the next episode of Narrative Shift, we speak with assistant director and my friend Donald L. Sparks. He gives us some insight on what it means to be part of a directorial team. The ultimate goal is to create a cohesion within your crew to get the best out of everybody. Thanks for listening to Narrative Shift. 
This series is produced by me, the Elevate team, and Max Collins. I'm your host, Natasha Tony. Be well, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.